This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. So this is a story we're definitely talking a lot about on this Tuesday. A group of states suing to block T-Mobile's proposed takeover of Sprint on antitrust grounds. Let's get into this. Nabila Ahmed is M&A reporter at Bloomberg. Jennifer Ree is senior litigation analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence. She's already had a pretty busy day. Both of them have. They're both in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio in New York. Jennifer, I want to start with mm-hmm. you. Talk about the law here. Well, Essentially, it's a pretty easy case here under the antitrust laws to show that this deal is a harmful deal. They, they use thresholds. The Department of Justice has guidelines, and the states use these guidelines. The courts use these guidelines that are called HHIs, Herfindahl-Hirschman Index. And basically, it's just looking at market shares, looking at what, those sh- and what the concentration is, and looking at the concentration pre- and post-merger. And if it exceeds a certain threshold, it suggests that this is a deal that's likely to cause harm to a market. So there are metrics. If they're exceeded... Right. There are it, metrics. Yeah. Now, no, it's a starting point. It doesn't answer the question question at the end of the day because you have to look at all the facts and circumstances. But in this case, what the state said is we looked at these HHIs, they exceed these thresholds, and all of these pro-competitive benefits that the, co- the companies have argued, we think they're speculative, we don't think they're going to come to pass, we don't really think they hold water, and by the way, we think some of them they could do without the merger. So we don't really buy this balancing because that's one of the things you can do under the antitrust laws is, is ask what are the pro-competitive sides of the deal and balance that against the harm. Uh, but here the states say no, the balance works out, this is more harmful than good, and so we're going to sue. All right, so that's what the lawyers say. What are the bankers <laughs> saying, Nabila Ahmed? The bankers are saying that this deal really needs to go through, even though it's going to bring the number of players down from four to three. Sprint cannot survive on its own if this deal does not go through. Um, it will either have to be, uh, it may have to go into bankruptcy, it will, may need another partner, may need a massive cash injection. And also their point is that this 5G, uh, the 5G revolution that these companies are are talking about is what's going to make America really competitive and without these guys you can't really build that. Um, You've got AT&T and Verizon building their own networks but neither of these operators can build their own network without the other. So Jennifer, I'm Mm -hmm. also curious, so let's talk about the antitrust division. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's a lot of pressure on Macon Delrahim uh, and we caught up with him at at Milken uh, a few months ago. So What's he likely to do? Is there anything, any cues that we can take from this administration, from this Justice Department, about whether they side with the states or whether they go in a different direction? Well, I think it's an incredibly difficult call to make, but I think the filing by the states may suggest that it looks like the Department of Justice was leaning toward clearing this deal with some additional remedy, because I believe if the states, you know, they align and they communicate right. and, and they understand what the other side, what the other group is thinking, and I think if the states expected or were assured that the Department of Justice was going to sue to block, they would have just waited and joined that lawsuit, which is what they mo- usually do right. uh, in this situation. So it suggests to me this filing that the DOJ may be leaning toward clearing this deal, although we do expect additional remedies because we know that they've already said, or at least it's been reported by news, that they don't believe what's been offered to the FCC is good enough. We know that De- Macon Del Rahim and Ajit Pai from the FCC had lunch on Friday. I understand that they shared some French fries um, <laughs> uh, um, while they were lunching. I and was so they were sure discussing... you weren't going to go there. Like they shared some information. <laughs> they shared French fries. They okay. f- sh- but, they shared... but I love that you did. I know. Totally. <laughs> they shared French fries. And you know that would have been a 
friendly discussion because you don't share French fries <laughs> with somebody you hate. Um, but we understand. So that. true. <laughs> I guard mine. <laughs> so as Jennifer was saying, a lot of signs are pointing at, were pointing mm-hmm. us to the fact that perhaps Macon Del Rahim was getting ready yeah. um, to approve mm-hmm. this deal with some extra remedies. And the states are now trying to really back him into a corner. I feel like we've yes. been talking about this forever. We have. We have. Oh. It's more than have. a year. Yeah. It's, because yeah. it's yeah. been a long investigation. Yeah. And so when you think about the deal-making aspect of this, if you're, if you're a banker or if you're in sort of the corporate M&A suite at one of these companies, do you start to think about plan B or plan C at this point? Or do you hold tight to wait for the next shoot a drop. I'm sure they have been thinking about that. The other thing is that a lot of other companies are on the sidelines waiting to see right. what happens to this deal to figure out what they want to do with their potential you know, business, potential M&A further down the track. So a lot of people are watching this very closely. What's really interesting here is that if this is very, very, very rare, if not unprecedented, for the states to come out um, before a DOJ decision has come down and for them to differ, I guess, go different ways. So people are really nervous about that. And so- this... Yeah. No, uh-huh. I'm sorry. So why did they do that then? Yeah. Well, it is very rare. Um, and it's very rare that when they do this, they're successful. I mean, we have some examples back in the 1980s and early 1990s of some success. And actually recently, one issue... Uh, uh, case in 2017 but you know it could have been to pressure the DOJ it could mm. have been to put the DOJ yeah. in the position where, where the DOJ felt that they needed to join as well uh, that's one possibility but it is generally odd for the states to come out and do this on their own uh, very unprecedented but things in the antitrust world are, are kind of like the wild west right now and all sorts of unpredictable and sort of unprecedented things are happening and here's another well and to that point it does feel like investors, bankers, executives are really having a hard time getting their arms around what the ethos of this DOJ is, this antitrust division right now. It is right? It is very difficult. Even just today, I was talking to a Bloomberg client saying it just doesn't make any sense. This is a DOJ that sued to block AT&T Time Warner, which for all intents and purposes within the antitrust world really looked like a fine deal, yeah. a deal that didn't cross that antitrust line. And all this time was put into that and, and the litigation. And of course, they lost the district court, and then on appeal, the government lost. The government right. lost, and and then this deal, which from the beginning looked anti-competitive, and to be honest, two for, uh, previous attempts at a similar deal mm-hmm. were both generally you know stopped because of antitrust concerns. So it's it's just very surprising the way they're go- the direction they're going. Just got twenty seconds left. So what's our next date, or what's our next action that we're waiting for? Well, I, I guess we would need to hear what the DOJ will say. That's mm-hmm. what I think. Right, and the FCC formal approval likely in July. The story that keeps on giving. We know you'll both keep watching. <laughs> and you'll give us an update and all the great analysis. Thank you both so much. Jennifer Ree, Senior Litigation Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Nabila Ahmed is M&A reporter for Bloomberg. Both watching the back and forth around Sprint and T-Mobile. So we're going to talk a little bit about food right now. Our next guest was the former co-CEO of Whole Foods Market, having worked his way up the ranks after starting as a store manager, right? Yeah, he's shaking his head. Uh, And he spent a long time there. Today, he's an investor, mentor, and advisor to the next generation of food companies. Walter Robb joining us from our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio, uh, now running his own uh, firm. It's called Stonewall Robb. Nice to have you back with us. Well, Jason and Carol, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. You know, it's funny. We had a conversation yesterday, an author, Amanda Little. She's got a book out. It's called The Fate of Food. And she was looking into what we're going to eat in a bigger, hotter, smaller 
world. And I am guessing that you're kind of looking at that too. How do we feed the world going forward? Um, how do people buy food going forward? What are the trends that you're seeing? Well, that's a big question. I mean, it is. You can take it from a lot of different angles. I think, you know, one thing is you've seen the convergence of food, technology, health. They're all kind of coming together. But let's take, uh, let's take food first. Uh, we're plant forward. We're fresh forward. And when I say plant forward, about a third of the investment dollars coming into the market now are on either dairy alternatives or meat alternatives, beyond meat being obviously the proxy for that yeah. investment thesis. But we're going to see uh, Sainsbury's, the U.K. grocer, just came out with a big report saying the food, food world in 2050. So they were talking about insects, crickets, protein, that sort of thing. But we're going to see a you – know, we've only used 1% of plant compounds to this point. We're going to see a wide range of, uh, of foods. Uh, from this point going forward. So, so that's wait, just on the food side of things. So beyond meat, not just a flash in the pan? Heck no, Heck because no. the demand for plant proteins, not just the U.S., but globally, they've already announced their intention to sell in Amsterdam, and the demand across all the way to Asia is very big. So the reason I think the, the streets, uh, oh, there's a correction, obviously, any public company, but uh, the demand for plant-based protein is huge. An ingredient in restaurants, in the supermarkets, they also just introduced their, their ground, a pound of ground in Whole Foods in the Boulder Colorado store at ten bucks a pop, and it's 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 popping. <laughs> so they they got three paths to market. So obviously, you spent a lot of time at Whole Foods and saw that whole juggernaut as it developed. You also live in Austin, Texas, where I feel like you get a different view of, of the consumer. You were mentioning just before he slid a y'all in there. there. I know. Yeah. In Texas, we all y'all, all y'all, all y'all. <laughs> so all y'all down there in Texas, <laughs> you know, right. you're looking at a bunch of mega trends. Not the least of which is. It's the 11th biggest city in America at That's this point, correct. the fastest growing. So what do you see in terms of the trends as it relates to what we're eating? And, and especially like when you think about restaurants and stuff like that, I know you have a window into that world as well. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, in Texas, it's barbecue first, sure. right? I mean, that's where you go for barbecue. You go to Black's, you go to Franklin's, you go to any number of these places. But uh, in the restaurant world, we're seeing this wide range of the fast food, uh, which is reinventing itself. And then the Impossible Burger Beyond Meat is part of that reinvention, yeah. all the way up into fine dining. What we are seeing is that folks are, uh, there's a lot less trips. First of all, people don't do lunch anymore, okay? Like when my father or grandfather was doing business, they went to lunch and they did business over lunch. That's sure. just not happening. And the dinner trips are a lot more skimpy. So restaurant trade in general is, is struggling to get the sort of trips. And where you see the growth is in the delivered food. Right. And so you go on phone, your phone at 4 o'clock in the afternoon, I want Thai food, I want Indian, whatever it is, it's there at that night of dinner. You're seeing an explosion in the delivery of restaurant quality food. So, um, you know, we're seeing a, we're changing in as much as the customers demanding new choices, and in the way the customers make those choices, and we're seeing the retailers evolve to have those sort of capabilities. So we're making we're we're basically remaking the food industry from the ground up. So I don't know. Five years from now, how are we shopping? Well, you're shopping all the different ways, and depending on what's going on in your day, there are some you know a working professional like yourselves who would say, you know what, I'm not going to the store anymore. I'm just going to do it on my phone. Right. And the way that's going to happen is your home assistant, you know, your Google Home or, or your Alexa is just going to say, well, now, Carol or Jason, here's what we think you should have. Um, and we think we'd like to deliver it to you tomorrow at 10 o'clock. And you're going to say, yes, that's right. And the machine learning will take you there. Others like me, a devoted grocer, say, I want to go to the store because there's people there. And I want to feel the juice. I want to feel great about it, you know. So, so we're going to – and everything in between. But most likely what we're seeing, what we're seeing in the data is that the customers like to do both. They like to sometimes go to the store and sometimes have it delivered and right. sometimes pick it. So it's, we're seeing all the, all okay. options. 30 seconds left. One of the things I worry about with food This delivery, went by very fast. I know. I know. Is 
the idea of waste, you know, both sort of the packaging. 40% of the U.S. food production system is lost or, or wasted. So what do we do about it in a 30 lot. seconds or less? We turn it into upcycled products. We create a new category of products that customers will support. We get every manufacturer to think about the stuff that there's on the residue and, and do something creative with it. And you've invested in a company called Food Maven. Is I have. That right? Food Maven is essentially making a market for that stream of food that mm-hmm. doesn't currently have a home. 20 seconds more. I'm on Food Maven. Uh, no, or, I, think, or, I think, you know, the democratization of food. How do we make healthy food more available for yeah. more people? Yeah. Food waste, food access, food safety is huge. Pathogens are reemerging. 20% of the ice cream in the U.S. Uh, not passing muster. These are big issues that this next generation of food entrepreneurs and food companies are going to have to solve. Biodiversity of food. We have 75% of our food from five meat and seven, 12 plants. We've got to do better than that. And uh, we've got to have a food system that doesn't waste that much food. All right. Next time we promise more. Please. Yeah. Retail. We didn't even talk retail. I know. Come on. Or CBD. <laughs> I know. CBD. Oh, yeah. my God. It's all a haze. She does indeed work really hard and really tries to dig deep into the financial markets, the equity markets, and get an understanding, greater understanding of what's going on. Margie Patel is in the house. She's Managing Director and Senior Portfolio Manager at Wells Fargo Asset Management, based in Boston, in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio on this Tuesday. Nice to have you here with us. Good to be here. So you look at the markets. Uh, You've seen a lot of market cycles, uh, and I love somebody who has seen that. What do you make of this one that we're currently in? Uh, I think we have a few trends here, long-term trends, which is a long-term trend for lower interest rates, continuing even from these very low rates. I think that's a real sea change in our investment backdrop. And as I look at the U.S. So economy, for longer than, I mean, to keep just continue not, this cycle. Correct. And we are not in a short-term cycle of Fed moves. I think we're in a long-term secular downtrend in rates. The Fed will be following that along. And so what does that look like over the next sort of six months to nine months? Because I feel like the market can't quite make up its mind around a raise or a cut or a stay here. Or what's the data that you think they need to see to make a move one way or the other? I think the Fed is fundamentally revaluing what is a real rate of interest, what Mm. is a neutral rate of interest, and clearly we're seeing around the world that rate is lower, and I think the Fed will intellectually come around to that point. That's what I'm looking for in June for them to elaborate on something. Do they run the risk, though, Margie, of putting themselves in a position that if the economy, we see some kind of downturn, even if it's a slight one, that they just don't have any ammunition to kind of get things going again? Well, that was a logic in aggressively raising rates last year, which almost put us on the brink of a recession. Uh, that's, that shows to me that the model is broken, that the Fed can drive the bus and determine strengthen the economy, weakening the economy. I think that they're going to pull back from their activist role. I think that's very good uh, for the volatility, and I think it's good for helping the economy to continue the natural growth. So are our days of stronger growth over? I'm looking for growth for the U.S. economy to be one and a half to two and a half percent. That's maybe lower than some periods in the past, but it's good enough to be a good backdrop for the equity investor. And so 
Let's talk a little bit about earnings because it's Carol Masters' favorite topic. She Great says benchmark, right? That's when we actually hear, she rightly says, that's when we actually hear what companies think about where we're going. What do you expect to see the next time we get start to, to get some real numbers from companies? Well, I'm looking for a deceleration in the rate of earnings growth. Of course, the first quarter was negative, actually, overall. Right. Uh, but I'm looking for earnings to uh, still be good enough reflecting a real economy and I think that we'll see growth slowing reflecting the slower economy but uh, still positive over you know the next few quarters. Is it a healthy market? I think it's a very healthy market, uh, primarily because we have the Fed backing off their counterproductive policy. I think that's why we've had low volatility in rates and why even equity, we've had relatively modest volatility because I think the Fed's uncertainty was really creating more market volatility. And so when you look at different sectors that may benefit from this type of economy, this type of economic backdrop, where do you look? I'm looking at sectors that will have sustained long-term growth. So technology is still the biggest sector mm. for long-term growth. Parts of the healthcare sector, I think, will continue to have long-term growth. And some of the cyclical sectors that are restructured that should at least be cash flow neutral in downturns, gushing cash in the upturns, I think will do well. Some of the industrial companies, some of the materials, chemical companies. I'm curious when you say technology, what kind of technology? Because it's such a big, <laughs> broad space. But And there's been a few that have really been outperformers and have driven so much of the momentum. Is it that space? Is it the Googles, the Facebooks, uh, the Apples that you're interested in? Is it the chip companies? I'm just curious. Well, I think the chip companies continue to be a value play. I think that the amount of negative a value volatility, play. Yeah, so they, but in a good way because yeah. I think that uh, they know they're in a cyclical business. They have all restructured the the supply-demand economics are much better now than they've ever been. And so I think that as we see excess inventory build up in the first half of the year, as that's works down in the second half, I'm looking for cash flow to increase again. And then long-term growth as more and more technological components are used. And with those technological components being used, one of the things that we've heard a lot about in our own Gina Martin-Adams brought mm -hmm. this up at the top of the show is this idea of a potential radical change in global supply chains. You know, with this trade war as the backdrop, you may see, we may see companies have to change their suppliers, their sites for manufacturing and whatnot. Can you model something like that or how does it play into your investment thesis? Well, I think that's what we'll see. I think we may have some short-term pressure on margins as companies redeploy a supply center, maybe not so China-centric. Uh, again, that's a long-term deflationary force on costs for companies and will help them maintain their margins. So I don't see it as a bad thing long-term. Hmm. I mean, I do wonder kind of what's different, right? I mean, did something happen because of the financial crisis that has changed kind of our equity markets? I think about, you know, a nice run-up last year, a bullish run-up, certainly if you were trying to short the market, you weren't happy until December when it came undone. And we blame the Fed largely for so much of that. And we had another rally this year, and then we kind of pulled back again. I mean, is this just the way it is There's, that the market corrects 
much more quickly when it doesn't like something, kind of gets it, gets the excess out. Yes, but that's short-term trading rather than reflecting the fundamentals. And to me, the big change is that the Fed will no longer be able to have interest rates at that much higher so-called comfort level that they would like to see, that rates will be materially lower, and rates will be, I think, unhinged from the equity markets. Margie, does it ultimately lead to some asset bubbles? I mean, is that just like, just wait, guys, they're coming? Well, it hasn't so far, and we've tested zero rates. We still haven't seen inflation or asset bubbles, a few little minor bubbles here and there, but it just says we're in a deflationary world. So what's your single biggest worry in this market? I was just going to say, what keeps you up at night? Because you seem pretty upbeat. Well, I think that we are the global leader in growth. I think that will continue. But some of the weakness that we're seeing overseas, for example, emerging markets, some of those are really having uh, very, very slow growth and some financial problems with high leverage. So I worry a little bit that weakness there or weakness in Europe could roll back onto the U.S. and hurt our demand. How do you um, incorporate the U.S.-China trade war? Just got about 30 seconds here. How do you incorporate that into your outlook? A short-term pain for long-term gain, I think it'll help U.S. companies long-term. Very minor little blip if a negative on GDP. So we'll get over this. Yes. Huh. This too shall pass, Carol. Yeah. Stop worrying so, so much. So George Harrison says, right? There you go. All things must pass. <laughs> Margie <Right>? Patel, <laughs> Managing Director and Senior Portfolio Manager for Wells Fargo Asset Management, based up in Boston, but here with us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio today. Great to have you with us. Everybody talking about the seven sun and the whole round world that is only one and I'm a one. Kinda love that story. I mean, I love that song. Song? Yeah. yeah song, the story, I don't know who all that of is. it. I do love the story, too. Uh, and so do Bloomberg Terminal users because it's among our most read today. Comcast making some big bets on esports, kind of keeping it too in the family while doing it. Let's get into this story. Chris Palmieri is LA Bureau Chief at Bloomberg News. We find him on the phone from Los Angeles, the LA Convention Center, to be exact. He's been having the time of his life at E3. <laughs> <laughs> Joel Weber also with us. He's Bloomberg Business Week editor, of course, in our Bloomberg. Interactive Broker Studio New York. Hey, just set the scene, Chris. E3, what do you see? Who's there? What's going on? So I'm, I'm sitting in a uh, lobby of the convention center surrounded by 70,000 uh, really crazy video game uh, fans. Most of these people, by the way, work in the industry, and it's one of the strangest things I ever see. You go to these, you know, uh, one soft, software company has a competing product, and everybody goes and cheers. It's a, it's a, it really speaks to the community that uh, is emerging with video gamers. And so behind me in the convention center, huge booth set up, a uh, giant uh, b- bus with a balloon and uh, for Fortnite. And, uh, and Borderlands 3 has all of its giant characters. I mean, uh, we're talking, you know, 12-foot uh, uh, tall statues and colorful sort of anime figures. Uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's a lot of energy, a lot of excitement spilling out also well beyond the convention center into the whole really downtown Los Angeles areas. Companies are hosting parties. You can go into these tents and stream games and uh, just a lot of energy. All right. So, Joel Weber, come in here because it feels like what you're trying to capture in this, and keep me honest, is both a story of a company and its ambitions and a family and their ambitions, but also this whole new industry that we're trying to get our arms around the esports industry. Could, could you describe it any any tighter? Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, so I, what we really kind of uh, latched onto was. Uh, Chris's idea here, which was you have this Comcast family company still 
that is dynastic in many ways, like founded by a grandfather, yeah. led by a father, and, and son sort of in the wings, is sort of the scion. But uh, he has to kind of make something his own, right? So before before you can grow up, you got to get some, you know, a bike with some training wheels. And everyone looks at esports, and it's sort of like, boy, there's this massive potential here that no one has claimed. And what would it look like if, if uh, you had great foresight and tried to claim that? So, you know, the jury's still out on whether or not this version of it's going to work. Right. But, like, imagine that. Like, you could build a single-use stadium in Philadelphia and pack it on any given Thursday afternoon with fans who are going to watch esports. That's incredible, and that that's effectively what this story is about. I also feel like it's a great lesson to CEOs out there who might be a little bit older, who've been at companies, you know, legacy companies, who maybe, you know, we talk about you got to bring in diverse voices, different ages into your company to find out what the trends are going to be of the future. Yeah, and this is a big bet on that because yeah. we know video games are a thing. Esports, if you, if you don't know what that is, it's like people watching other people play video yep. games, which, you know... I, I couldn't. I couldn't quite realize what that was until I remembered my own childhood, and I would go over to friends' yes. house and we would watch each yes. other play video games, yeah. and then you'd figure out, oh, that's how I beat that level or whatever, yeah. right? So nice I, jump, bro. There, there is uh, DNA for this uh, in the culture already, and that's why I think it's 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 working to some extent. So Chris Palmieri, alongside Michael Jordan, Jerry Jones, the owner of the Dallas Cowboys, and Atlanta's Cox Communications, comes Tucker Roberts as an owner of. A sports team, an e-sports team. Who is this kid? The French sling of Cable Town. Just to be clear, <laughs> so it's Comcast that owns all of it. Okay. And he has been appointed to be, you know, uh, the president of Comcast eSports division, essentially. And, uh, yeah, I, you know, I asked him about this. It was sort of like a Comcast, as you mentioned, founded by uh, uh, Tucker's grandfather, Ralph Roberts, a pioneer in cable TV, started with, you know, 1,200 subscriber system in Tupelo, but along the way did things like he founded the Golf Channel. Uh, and so, in a way, this is sort of a, a, a new generation and a new media, and uh, and this is how Tucker sees the future of the world. And they're doing it deliberately, as you mentioned, the stadium is, is right down in Philadelphia where all the other sports are, and that, that's what they're trying to do here in Los Angeles with the Overwatch League teams that will play here. Uh, a lot of the uh, player uh, owners are are people in the sports world who see young people, in fact, many athletes playing these games and, and see the convergence of it all and the competition and the global reach and trying to reach these new younger uh, right. uh, consumers. So uh, so that's what's going on. And Tucker, I was one of my high school uh, uh, show, uh, Broadway show was Pippin. And so this is Tucker Roberts trying to find his corner of the sky, like a uh, young uh, <laughs> Chris, my, one of my favorite details from your reporting, though, is that all, the guys on the team, they all live together. Team house. That just is what's, terrifying. What's that like? <laughs> it's uh, it's a, you know, a very nice Tudor uh, house and uh, no. not too far from Universal Studios here in Los Angeles. Uh, you know, it's actually surprisingly neat. I couldn't even find beer in the fridge. I mean, these, these guys and they're, I mean, the youngest is 19, the oldest is 28. Uh, you know, gamers, you know, age out just like uh, other right. uh, professional yeah, athletes. Get out of the house. Uh, yeah. They, uh, they're, they're intense. They're dedicated. They're playing all the time. They're streaming at night when they're not practicing. Uh, you oh, know, yeah, they awesome. have loyal fans. 
and All right. uh, they're they're saving their money. All right, we're going to leave it there. Get back to work in your hard video game life. There, Chris Palmieri, Los Angeles bureau chief for Bloomberg, on the phone from LA. Joel Weber, editor of Bloomberg Businessweek. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. Yeah, but you let me drive. Oh no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home, honey? Please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. All right, it is time for the drive to the close. Quincy Crosby back with us, chief market strategist at Prudential Financial, on the phone from Newark, New Jersey. Quincy, great to have you back with us, especially as we're trying to figure out what the heck is going on in this market, not just today, but over the last couple weeks, up and down for sure. Well, yeah, it's been up and down. I mean, the market has had a number of catalysts, primarily uh, the Federal Reserve, seemingly on an orchestrated campaign to assuage market fears that if the economy were to slow in a material way, that they would be uh, prepared to move. Obviously, that pushed up the uh, Fed Funds Futures market to say that we'll see some rate cuts this year. Uh, and, and what happened was that the weaker economic data served as that old, old, um, you know, bad news is good news, and it helped the market move higher. Also, the president's uh, dismissal of a potential tariff on Mexico, that that kind of, that helped dramatically. And now we sit here uh, with the market closing in on highs on the S&P 500, moving closer. But what we've noticed yesterday as well is that the volume has slowed uh, as we get closer and closer. And today we see a little bit of profit taking, but basically a non-committal market and a market that also is seen, by the way, uh, the 10-year yield move up a bit, uh, the yield curve steepening. And we saw this old uh, seesaw that we saw for so many years when the 10-year yield moves up. The financials do better, and the utilities pull back. Today, it worked just like the perfect seesaw that we've seen for so many years now. I guess what I wonder, too, and, you know, our Gina Martin-Adams so eloquently uh, kicking off our broadcast, just talking about these policy gaps, U.S.-China trade war, and so on and so forth, that we've got to get, you know, potentially some resolution before we can figure out what the correct trend in the markets will be. Having said that, I do like to fall back on fundamentals, Quincy. And when you see, when you look at the fundamentals of the market, whether it's earnings projections, growth, so on and so forth, some of the economic data, uh, you know, how, how do you call it? Or, you know, can you call it in terms of, you know, where the economy is going and subsequently where earnings and then the financial equity markets specifically are going? Well, that's the problem. And, and, and what you have is you, you see a lack of commitment from the big institutional investors in this market right now. I think they're trying to figure it out as well. What we want to hear, obviously, is from companies. That's, Carol, that's the most important thing, and particularly uh, about their revenue growth, because revenue growth is, is crucial. So the way we try to figure it out 
is that we look at, um, you know, the, the purchasing manager indexes, the ISM manufacturing, ISM service sector, to see what they have to say about new orders, because that tends to translate into uh, how companies are going to do. Today, we had some good news, and, and I think it did help the, the market, at least initially, and, and help the 10-year yield. One is uh, the National Federation of Independent Businesses came in before it's, um, uh, you know, move higher in that important survey of small and mid-sized business owners. But also, we heard from China, and that also helped the market in that they're continuing their stimulus program with uh, more infrastructure spending, using a, uh, you know, specialized bond to help um, raise funds for that. Anything that helps growth, global growth, uh, will help uh, the stock markets. But absolutely, uh, the market sits here waiting almost from, you know, tweet to tweet. But, you know, today I also have to say, I looked at Apple. I've been watching Apple share price. Uh, Apple is up. And one of the reasons behind that is they have done what everyone suspected is in terms of suppliers, uh, you know, moving away from China and right. coming up with a, th- that is very important. You know, in the earnings season, Cisco had an earnings call and they talked about their suppliers moving away from China uh, time ago. This is what we're going to see more and more of. However, if the tariffs increase, it will be a tax on the U.S. consumer and that will hurt consumer discretionary spending. And so how long do you imagine this is going to take to play through all the supply chains to in, in integrate, I should say, these costs into a, a new model of manufacturing? Is this, a, is this a couple quarters thing? Is this a year? Is it three years? How do you model something like this? Well, it's, it, it's, diff- it's difficult and you have to you know, depend on what you hear from the companies. But what's interesting about this uh, issue is that some years ago, as wages moved up in China, we started to see a move away from China. It became, you know, China plus one, China plus two, China plus three. This is going to continue in terms of manufacturing. But another aspect to this is what the president ultimately wants. And actually, something we've been hearing from Elizabeth Warren as she is out on the campaign trail. They want that to come back to the United States. And if that does, if companies say, all right, we're going back to the U.S., well, wages are going to move higher, which is good for Main Street. But what does it then do to the end product, the price of the end product? These are all issues that the market ultimately is going to figure out. That's the market's job. But right now you have a market that is selective, and it's a market that is both being defensive, and we're also seeing um, you know, select choosings in technology, uh, in consumer discretionary, waiting for the next catalyst. So if we see this market pull back a bit more, that's healthy. The consolidation will help, I think, build a foundation for that next move higher if that's the direction we're going to go. If it looks like we're going to be stalling out in the economy, watch for that inverted yield curve to continue. And then you'll hear uh, analysts suggest maybe it is not that different this time. All right. We're going to leave it there. Quincy Crosby, Chief Market Strategist for Prudential Financial. She joined us on the phone from Newark, New Jersey. Certainly a lot of questions 
to use Joe Biden's word from earlier, existential questions around what's going on in this market. A lot of politics playing into this, questions about trade, yep. and ultimately how companies are going to deal with this uncertainty. Well, and it's ultimately you know something we've been talking about in the magazine, several stories, and we continue that discussion uh, certainly this week as well. But you know, here we are, uh, longer or tied for a record expansion, U.S. economic expansion uh, since we started keeping the records, uh, if you will. But we've got to know what what does this all mean longer term? I mean, is this something we get resolved, specifically U.S.-China? And then does that send a strong signal to the rest of the world that, yep, we can, as a nation, do deals and figure it all out? Or do we continue to kind of push back and just focus on our domestic economy and kind of cut ourselves off from the rest of the world? Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.